Recovery Sort Of is a podcast where we discuss recovery topics from the perspective of people living in long-term recovery. This podcast does not intend to represent the views of any particular group, organization, or fellowship. The attitudes expressed are solely the opinion of its contributors. Be advised, there may be strong language or topics of an adult nature. Welcome back. It's Recovery Sort Of. I'm Jason. I'm a guy that follows the traditions. And I'm Billy. I'm a person in long-term recovery. I only follow the traditions because now I realize that they don't mean anything. <laughs> That's great. They're so, just loose suggestions. Yeah. Yeah. We're just, you know, things to think about. And I think about a lot of shit. So that's perfect. Um, <laughs> so tradition eight. This is going to be interesting, right? Not because it's all that interesting, but because I don't know what in the world we're going to say about it. <laughs> um, tradition eight. Narcotics Anonymous, of course, NA specific, Narcotics Anonymous should remain forever non-professional, but our service centers may employ special workers. I have no idea. I mean, that sounds so simple. I'm like, I think I have no idea what it means because I look for something deeper in it. Like, what does that mean to us, right? That we should remain forever non-professional, but our service centers may employ special workers. And I, I will say, I did actually, in the reading, learn a little something. I don't know if I learned it or just never really paid attention to it before about this. And that's that like when we say we don't hire professionals, and that's why we call them special workers, right? They're just, we can pay people, apparently, at some way, shape, or form, but they're not professionals. Right. And we only pay people within the service structure, you know, it's not within the groups. We don't even use special workers in groups, it right. says in the reading. Hmm. That is only for carrying out service work. So what is the importance of this tradition? It, it, I guess the idea is that we, well, I, I think, honestly, this first reading that I, I got says, the eighth tradition is vital to the stability of NA as a whole. Uh, in order to understand this tradition, we need to define non-professional service centers and special workers. With an understanding of these terms, this important tradition is self-explanatory. And then it goes on to say, in this tradition, we say that we have no professionals. By this, we mean that we have no staff, psychiatrists, doctors, lawyers, or counselors. Our program works by one addict helping another. If we employed professionals in NA groups, we would destroy our unity. We are simply addicts of equal status, freely helping one another. And I think that gets to the gist of why, right? Like we can't have professional counselors in our meetings telling people the right way to recover because then their authority would outweigh the authority of whoever's sponsoring somebody else or we can't like pay professional speakers to come in because then they would have more clout is that the purpose for this yes or even having like uh you know, psychiatrists come in and change things about the program because the new modern science says this or that. You know, we have this this program that we follow and we're all equal. We're all the same. We come in with the same, I don't know, status. You know, no one's better than or less than. Did you think you were equal when you got here? I mean, there's always a hierarchy <laughs> of social pecking order, but I definitely think I felt like 
I had a place here, you know, hmm. like, like that it was a safe place to be, I guess, or a place that I belonged. I definitely did not feel like, like I felt like clean time changed the quality level of people. And, I, and then I felt like, you know, if you were sponsoring somebody, the, the sponsee, I know it's not supposed to be, but it felt like a not subservient position, but you know, a, a lower position where you were seeking something. I mean, if, if you didn't hold that guy in a higher regard, then what did you need him for? Right. And I don't know. I've found over time that at the, the more I stay clean and the more I work on myself, the less importance I put on the clean time and the yeah. amount of time that someone's been clean. Well, that's because I see uh, how sick I still am. <laughs> right, I know. How well, I that know shit didn't I help <laughs> right. So now I say, oh, that guy with a bunch of years, he didn't know anything. Right. <laughs> <laughs> these people with these more years, they're just faking it better. <laughs> right, right. So I, I think, interestingly enough, this tradition, I think, impacted me when I first got here more than I realized. And that's in the sense that I would... I ended up in a detox. There was these professionals there who had this school book learning and they had a lot of information and I'm not saying it was bad information, but I wasn't sold on the idea that they really understood. Right. Cause I was still caught up in this terminally unique, like you don't get what I go through inside internally. Like you don't understand why I use cause I didn't understand why I used. I just kept doing it. Right. It felt like things were so hard when I didn't. And I didn't feel like the person coming out with a college degree really got that. And so coming into this 12-step world, it felt like these were people with the lived experience, right? And I really, when they shared, I identified so much with what they were talking about, the way we felt inside, the ways we hated ourselves, some of the actual physical things they did in their addiction to get more. Like I, It just felt way more relevant that they had been there and now we're doing something else. That felt like a a symbol of what could possibly happen in my life. Whereas had the 12-step world just been full of professionals like the detox was, that I don't think would have sold me on the possibility of it for me. Yeah, and there's that level of empathy that comes with someone who's been, you know, at least in familiar spots that you've been in. Right. That a professional may come at with sympathy but those are different concepts that sympathy empathy thing and of course in our literature there's always that saying you know the therapeutic value of one addict helping another is without parallel it's like that experience that we have of being out there you know knowing you want to stop knowing you don't know why you keep doing what you're doing but yet you do it anyway like that's a feeling that addicts can identify that i don't think people that aren't addicts can't necessarily recognize <laughs> and and i agree with that but i i think where my mind starts to wonder about how useful this is in today's world of 12 step is not so much in the sense that i agree i still think that we need the people who've been there right i think that's hugely important i just also question and this, i'm sure i'm biased in this way because i went to school and got this education <laughs> but people who've been there and are currently also the professionals. I feel like they do bring something, I don't want to say more to the table, but they have some other information that they've spent years learning. So it's like they have the lived experience and they have this ability that they've learned some tools along the way, whether that's a peer, whether that's a social worker, whether that's a psychiatrist, whoever it is, right? They've also got a special set of skills that can assist in helping people that maybe the average 
sponsor doesn't have. And so I, I don't know that we would need to bring in specialists or, or you know, professionals, but I, I feel like there's so many of us in that professional field now that a lot of that ends up coming into our space anyway. Um, I think it does. I mean, I, I think that's partially true, but it's important that, like, I don't have that education, and I don't feel like, maybe because I'm a fucking egomaniac, but I don't feel like that makes me any less of a sponsor than you would be able to be. You know what I mean? Right. Like, so what, you and your fancy education, you know? <laughs> well, and that's where it gets tricky, right? So I, my first real therapist in recovery was also in recovery, and she had, like, 30 years, and we talked a little bit about that sometimes like I was just interested like well do you when you're sponsoring people do you do they get the same thing that I'm getting here that I pay for like could you just sponsor me instead and I get it for free (laughs) right right? and she's like no they don't right and and I thought that was interesting yeah and I guess to some extent uh being on the other side of that I see that now like I I wouldn't say I, I don't do therapy with my sponsees that's for sure but at the same time there are some practices and skills that I try to give people in therapy that I do try to give people. Like before I was a therapist, I was not given any of my sponsees breathing techniques or, you know, ways to try to body scan and shit. And so like a lot of my suggestions now do incorporate some of those things like, Hey, this is useful. Uh, people who struggle with trauma or whatever, because a lot of us do, we know that now these are things those people do in, in professional counseling that help. Uh, I, I will say there are things my sponsees bring to me that I have said that might be something you want to see a professional counselor about, right? Yeah. And I think that's beneficial twofold. One, I no longer think I can help them with everything. <laughs> <laughs> and two, I, I do try to make sure I distinguish and don't take on like, hey, I, I can't be your therapist. Like, this is a different relationship than that. So I, I don't know that it makes us more qualified. I just... I look back and I wonder if I was giving people the right direction. Like I thought I was at the time because it was what I had. It was my experience. I don't I don't know that it was the best thing that they needed at that time. I have no idea. Oh, that's, I mean, for sure. Through uh, We're just sitting before this podcast outside talking about some things that I've changed in my approach to sponsorship over the years. And that... I think that's always going to be the case where the more information we have and the more we learn, we can look back on old behaviors and kind of, oof, <laughs> you know, I don't right. know, maybe I wasn't, you know, so great then, but that's part of life experience too. And, and yeah. trust in that in this process, we're all human beings and we have to give ourselves some permission to grow and change and make mistakes along the way. And maybe that's where a professional loses. You know, like if I'm paying somebody or they're a, a quote unquote professional at something, I don't expect them to be able to make mistakes. Like if you make mistakes, that's fucked up. <laughs> and that's why I could never be your therapist. <laughs> I'm going to make mistakes. No. And and so to to what you just said, I think that makes a lot of sense, right? I don't come into any of my program information. I don't go walk into a meeting and think that I know better than people because I'm a professional. It has very little to do with that. It's just that my life experience has tended to have me take classes that taught me a lot about how to deal with people who are struggling with past trauma or this, that, and the other. So it's basically just that I've added some life experience that 
helps me, you know, feel like I'm a little more competent at what I'm doing. It doesn't mean that I'm more competent than the next guy or that his life experience isn't also bringing a, a high level of competence to what he's doing. I just, I guess I, the life experiences I had make me feel like I'm more useful, not than other people, more useful than I used to be. Um, but I, I still don't come in and think, oh, I'm the professional here. I know better than these other people in this meeting. Like, no, like we all need something different. Right. And that's great for two reasons. One, I mean, for yourself, it should hopefully relieve some pressure. Like you're not, you know, the professional therapist, Jason, who now has some, you know, extra demands put on you because of your education. You're just another addict in here trying to help somebody get another day. Right. But then it's also good for the individual because, you know, hopefully they'll find a sponsor or support group or peers that they can relate to and connect to and and they aren't looking past other people because, oh, well, they don't have the qualifications of this guy or they don't have the same education, so maybe they won't be as good a sponsor. I mean, just like we talked about with sponsorship earlier, like I don't know, I don't think there's any right way or any right thing that I can say to anybody that's going to, keep them clean or keep them from relapsing or whatever. It's just that hopefully that connection of spirits and that connection of, of just being able to relate and communicate with somebody in a way that's going to support their growth. Right. I, I actually think I found this to be harder in the other direction. And that's that my goal was to not do therapy with people who were trying to get sober or clean. Like I was like, no, I want to work with other mental health stuff. I don't really <laughs> want to work with that aspect of it. Um, but I have found just because we are also people that struggle with other mental health stuff that I have a, a couple people that struggle, uh, or, or have struggled at least at some point in time with alcohol. And it's tricky for me in the therapy world <laughs> to try and to still be a therapist and not a sponsor which is weird for me. It's like, am I just giving this guy sponsorship suggestions or are we doing therapy? Like I, I sometimes it's hard to figure out because it, some of those basic early on tools of just trying not to do one more seem very like, I, I'm like, man, is this actual therapy information or am I just telling them what I heard in a meeting? Like, I, I don't know at this point sometimes. Yeah. So that gets a little weird for me. Yeah. And even if it wasn't in sponsorship, I mean, just think of like, meetings and the person who you know runs a meeting that meets every week like a your regular group meeting like those aren't professional people either and in fact I used to have a sponsor that would say if you were in that position of service you weren't supposed to like share like a normal person like that right. was that was a service position because you don't want to come off as some authority or some you know, professional, like, oh, I'm the one at the head of the room that's right. got the book and the gavel and, you know, I'm running shit. Like, <laughs> you actively had to go out of your way to not give that, you know, what do you call that, presentation. Right, right. If you've never been to a meeting, some of them actually do have gavels where they shut <laughs> yeah. people up with them, too. Yeah. It's funny. Other people just slam their hand, hand on, on the, the table. table. <laughs> so, uh, curiously, uh, this does bring up a couple of things. I believe that NA World Services does have lawyers. Like we've definitely gone to court about the, you know, who owns the literature and who can print it and if they got to buy it and copyrights, like there's some lawyers involved there. So I guess they're not members 
of NA and aren't trying to help people recover with their expertise, but we have professionals employed. Yeah, and I don't know enough about that uh, side of world services. I know there's definitely been lots of debate and, and controversy over what, you know, hiring professionals to do different things. I know we've had professional involvement in some of our literature from time to time that's yeah. been very controversial. Um, in the reading in the basic text, it does differentiate a special worker from a professional. Uh, there's a line in there about professionals. I don't know if you had it. In yeah, your it's quotes, down here so. somewhere. It says, uh, Tradition states service centers may employ special workers. This statement means that service centers may employ workers for special skills such as phone answering, clerical work, or printing. Such employees are directly responsible to a service committee. As NA grows, the demand for these workers will grow. Special workers are necessary to ensure efficiency in an ever-expanding fellowship. Interestingly, though, that says that the special employees are direct response are directly responsible to a service committee. And I feel like when NA World Service takes some member or group to court over copyright claims, they are no longer responsible to a service committee. They're responsible to NA World Services. Yes. So there's been some discussion over that, and I don't know the ins and outs of whether NA World Services is like really even its own separate business or entity from NA, the fellowship. Yeah. Uh, I know that's why there have been some areas that have sort of branched off or, or broke off or don't really pay much attention to what happens at World Service. Right. <laughs> they kind of print their own literature and do their own thing and, and sort of don't necessarily follow that direction because they feel like that's become a separate, like, incorporated business. It's it's not even a service body anymore. Uh, you know, and I, I don't know how useful that episode will be when we finally do it. I want to <laughs> get one of these people that knows a whole lot more about it than I do to talk about. But it will be fascinating because yeah. I just want to see the the break. Like, what happened? Like, where did this, you know, chasm appear between the people of NA, the groups of NA who supposedly run it, and this NA World Service body that seems to not completely follow what the people want. It's interesting. So when I read a lot of things that the world puts out, you know, a lot of their statements and things, they really sound pretty good. But then, of course, it's like, well, that was probably written by a professional. Right. So <laughs> <laughs> How wouldn't they sound good? Hired a professional PR person to write that shit out so that it sounds really good. But a little bit, I think, the next statement after what you just read in the basic text talks about talked about these special workers, I think, are supposed to follow the traditions still. Oh, um, yeah, yeah, and yeah. I don't know how that plays out when it comes to some of that business stuff. I really don't know how you could fit that in. Yeah, there's no tradition about suing people for copyright right. infringement. <laughs> for copyright or... Tradition right. 13. <laughs> Thou shalt or not who sue owns anyone. the literature. You know, that's right. the big one. Who owns the literature? So that piece you're talking about says, the difference between professionals and special workers should be defined for clarity. Professionals work in sp specific professions that do not directly service NA, but are for personal gain. Professionals do not follow the NA traditions. Our special workers, on the other hand, work within our traditions and are always directly responsible to those they serve, to the fellowship. 
So I guess my only qualm there would even be at like a, let's say an area level, is like we use professional printing services. I mean, to print schedules or flyers or things like that. Is that different? I mean... Yeah, they're not working within our traditions. No, we don't even ever ask. It's like, how much does it cost to print this fucking right. flyer? Right. <laughs> Eight cents? Okay, give me honor. <laughs> Are you following the traditions when you print these papers? <laughs> yeah, maybe we need... Uh, we need. I'm going to bring what this up What is your primary area. purpose? <laughs> yeah, you can't print this unless you... Uh, your primary purpose is to... Yeah. Next time you go to Kinko's, you better ask them which step they're on. That's right. <laughs> God damn it. That's interesting. Uh, I mean, and, and to go back to where we talk about not having professionals and, and not paying people, it doesn't say this specifically, but we do kind of in a backwards way, the same way you say that churches give groups a discount, we finance some of our speakers to fly out and stay for our conventions, which... I know. Here we go back to the conventions aren't really part of NA, which is the weirdest shit ever. But how does that work? We're kind of financing to get a speaker there. Like that's kind of a paid professional. Isn't the definition of professional that you're paid to do a job? Yeah. I would say that's, you know. Well, and there it says for personal gain or something. Yeah. I mean, maybe you could clarify that the speaker is doing it for other people's benefit too. Mm. Is that really, I mean. Yeah, but they're also getting their CD. <laughs> they don't even give out CDs anymore. So the recent convention we went to, they don't give out CDs, and all of the speaker stuff is available for free. Yeah, but that's not. I don't think that's at everyone. That's no, gonna, it's going to put those guys who manage recovery houses and record speaker jams out of business. <laughs> they won't have a job anymore. You think they still record CDs and print CDs? I don't know. I that's mean, they got to be going away. They they gave me one last year at that whatever the hell we went to. What was that's that true. that camp? But even still, that's a that's a whole thing of, you know, are they special workers? People that record at events and speaker jams? Because we've mm. had that same thing at, like, uh, marathon, you know, speaker jams and, like, our Christmas marathon. They've had them recorded at different times. Right. And I'm sure that shit's paid. Oh, yeah. Those are professionals. That shit ain't free. I mean, so... you're, if you're the speaker, you get a CD for free. Uh, what happened when we did it at a speaker jam a long time ago, we didn't pay them to come. They just sold speaker CDs and tapes and shit. Like they sold ones from that day and then old stock they had. So they made money, but we didn't pay for them to be there. Like they came Oof. and were just there. Yeah. I can't imagine they made a lot of money. Well, even that, I was like, oh, isn't that some sort of weird affiliation or... Well, it was a speaker jam, so it wasn't technically part of NA. No, I'm just kidding. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm making that shit up. In other words, we're just ignoring this tradition all over the place. Yeah. Except for groups. Yeah. So the only other quote I had uh, to help define some of this was, a service center is defined as a place where NA service committees operate. The World Services Office or local, regional, and area offices are examples of service centers. A clubhouse or halfway house or similar facility is not an NA service center and is not affiliated with NA. A service center is, very simply, a place where NA services are offered on a continuing basis. I don't know exactly what that clarifies, but... That actually makes it more confusing because, like, in our area, we don't have an office. Yeah. We meet at a facility, and they don't... I guess you could say they provide ongoing services through H&I and stuff. And phone line, but yeah, yeah, that's a little kind loose. Of tricky, right? <laughs> <laughs> so I mean, it's yeah, not like we have an NA service center where anyone can walk into and 
and a services. And I, and I feel like this specific tradition for sure, like, and it seems like the first few were able to, we were like, Oh, what would this look like in our local neighborhood or our community or our government like this? I don't feel like this translate to anything outside of the 12 step fellowship. Well, the only part I would say ties in is sort of the autonomy from the group. And just like you had pointed out, you know, you don't, you don't try to go into your profession, you know, as a therapist and be like, so my experience in NA tells me blah, 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 and start sponsoring people as you would in NA. Right. It's like trying to establish that professional line of like maintaining your anonymity from the fellowship for the protection of the fellowship and the protection of the individual, but, hmm. you know. Yeah, I've always kind of thought the purpose was we didn't want anybody coming in and being more important than anybody else. I really thought that was the goal of this tradition. I right. have no idea what I was thinking. I, I guess there's some of that in there. I, I don't know. Like, what is the point? Well, the spiritual principle, I think, at the base of it is autonomy. That's where I went with... Is that we're all just equal? Right. We're all just Faceless. equal members. We come in, we're, we're just another addict. Nobody's greater than or more important than... <laughs> the old cliche, there's no big eyes and little U's. Yeah. Either. Never really like that, that anymore. Nah, but yeah, I, I, is it just so we can feel equal? Is it just for the protection of NA's message getting through? That sounds like a cult again. Yeah, <laughs> just NA's message. We don't want any powerful people within it. Well, like, if we have professionals running things, is that going to divert us from our primary purpose? You know, and and are they going to go along with the latest trends of? science or education or philosophy or are they going to stick with you know the clear message of what we've been doing you just made it sound more like a cult do we, do <laughs> yeah. we want to follow the sciencey stuff that's <laughs> out there right now or do we just want to stick to what we've had forever i, I, I kind of want to follow science our, we did a, what one of our early episodes is is it a cult was it the first one uh, it been the first one so we did one of our very early episodes about is it a cult? And I think we came up with it pretty much was. Did we? I thought we said it wasn't. That's funny. We, but it we, was pretty close. And this is how two people talk for an hour and a half and still come up with the opposite conclusions and think we both agree. <laughs> yes, we agreed it wasn't a cult. And Billy's like, yeah, we agreed it was a cult. Yeah. It feels more and more like a cult every week we talk about it. Yeah. It's got cultish pieces to it. Like there's, it could be a cult. Let's say that. Yeah. It definitely could be. I don't know that it is. I think it only gets into cult world when it gets weird and harmful. Like, really? Man, weird isn't the right word, but like harmful and like dangerous. Is cult a derogatory Negative? term? I think so. Oh, I think we've made it out to be, but I, I would think a cult's a cult either way. I mean, we could be a cult of like healthy eating, uh, you know, exercising wellness people, and we're still a cult if we say yeah, outside but- information isn't welcome. If someone says they're a vegetarian, that's different than like a, a vegan or says they're part of the vegan cult. Like that has a more sinister, <laughs> I think. Really? You don't think so? The vegans are a cult? Well, that's, they can be quite cultish. Oh. Too. Maybe they're all cult. Maybe everything's a cult. Well, and I don't necessarily mean one is right or wrong. I'm just saying that word cult, I think, is synonymous with negativity, with a with a bad experience. My take on it is that cults are only cults when you're on the outside of them. <laughs> when you're on the inside, it's just your friends. So there's my, my great advice for the week. Yeah. Join a cult. <laughs> Once you're on the inside, it's great. 
But yeah, we're just supposed to be a fellowship of, you know, one addict helping another. I am just another guy here trying to get another day. I don't have any professional education. I'm not, you know, any smarter. Well, I don't know how. You, yeah, people are smarter and people are definitely smarter. Yeah, have different skill sets, that's for sure. But as far as when it comes to the program or recovery, we're all equal. This episode has been brought to you in part by Voices of Hope, Inc., a nonprofit recovery organization made up of people in recovery, family members, and allies. Together, members strive to protect the dignity of those that use drugs and those in recovery by advocating for treatment, harm reduction and support resources, and mentoring. Please visit us at www.voicesofhopemaryland.org and consider donating to our calls. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. So that's Tradition 8, but I, that's an extremely short episode. So I was in Jamaica and I was down there and there's people selling weed on every beach, mm. right? And I'm like... This would be the ideal place to try this, which is interesting. So, okay, uh, back history. I went to St. Lucia with four years clean on my honeymoon. Only other time I've been to the Caribbean, ran into the same thing with the weed, didn't really want to smoke weed, but I did decide in St. Lucia, I was like, you know what? I'm going to drink. Everybody's here drinking. It's an all-inclusive resort. All this shit's paid for anyway. I want to drink too. Like, fuck that. And it ended up, uh, I sat there with this decision. I said I was going to do it. We were getting ready to leave. My wife took like... 45 minutes to get ready <laughs> to, to leave the little you know apartment we were in and uh by the time she had finally got ready i had convinced myself not to i don't even know what happened during that time but i decided not to so i didn't but i'm down there this time and i'm like there's all this weed down here i've been thinking about being more open-minded yeah like this is the safe place to try this right <laughs> like if i do this at home well i know where to buy weed at home now because i did it at home and and it's part of my normal routine. If I do it in the island, that's totally different because it's like I'll go home and it won't feel the same. It'll be like, no, that's the thing I did to relax on the island. That's what I do in my life. And I, I thought that was a weird thought to have. And I don't know if that's just one of those like addict type thoughts or if there's actually some sense behind that. I did decide that I, I'm going to get 20 years clean before I do any of this experimenting that I say <laughs> I might want to do in the future. So there will be no hallucinogens for at least uh, uh, two years plus going on there for me. But I I don't know why. I, I guess that my ego wants to be able to say I had that 20 years at some point. But <laughs> I don't know. Like, What do you think about that? Would that be the safe place to do something like that? Like, If I was going to try hallucinogens one day, should I go to another fucking country and do it because it's safer? Uh, I don't think that other country. I would definitely think a safe environment with you know, doing them in someone's backyard with no real professional supervision probably isn't the place you want to do it. But I think in general the concept is 
it's nice to be able to like go on vacation and forget all your responsibilities mm. and let go of the fucking trappings of everyday life and be free. And that a lot of times has been my motivation for using at least the excuses I wanted to tell myself, man, I just want to not care and let go of shit and, and relax and have a good time. And using seems to be a part of that. Right. Um, that isn't what it really looked like in real life, Not at all. but that's was the lie that I told myself. <laughs> right, right. And so it's easy to see, you know, because that's what normal, healthy people do. You know, they go out for the weekend with some friends. They go to the beach. They have a good time, and then they come home and they can maintain normal life. But as addicts, I've never been able to do that. So, so it's. Interesting. I think that's why it looks appealing, right? It might be. It might be that uh, there's definitely like some jealousy for people that could, like, because uh, I thought about it. My wife, I don't think she's ever smoked weed. Maybe she did it mm. once a long time ago and and didn't like it or whatever. But we were down there, and I was like, "Well, do you want to try it? Like, do you, <laughs> do you want to? Like, you're down here. You don't have any rules like I do. Like, not that they're rules, but." you don't have this kind of thing that I have. Like, do you want to try it while we're down here? Like, why not? Right. It's dirt cheap. It's everywhere. And she's like, no, not really. And I'm like, all right. And, and she interesting. I mean, like she is somebody who drinks alcohol, but she didn't really drink a whole lot while we were down there. I felt like saying, you're not getting our money's worth. God damn it. You got to drink for, for you got to drink for eight. (laughs) Like all these fucking kids were like, yeah, but I don't know. There's something to it. I have this supervisor at work who's like a trauma specialist and I, and I love her and she's got great information and she presents the idea that people who are traumatized generally, we search for ways to be outside of our body. It does not feel safe to be in our body. Right. And and we do this in a, a billion ways. It's not just drugs or alcohol. We do it with like you know, phone addiction, so to speak, or, or just anything that takes us outside of ourselves, being busy. And her belief is basically the idea that like anxiety, depression, all these things are kind of things to take us out of what it would be like to just be in our body. Right. So these coping skills, which are terrible, you know, nobody wants anxiety or depression, but we evolve them over time because they are better than dealing with what it feels like normally. And she says that when you meet people who've done trauma work and who've gotten way healthier, they don't generally hope to be outside of their bodies all that often. Like that's not their goal in life. They kind of, once you feel comfortable in your body, that's where you want to be. And going with that idea, I look at her and I say, but that doesn't mean always, right? I don't think anybody particularly wants to be in their body all the time. Yeah, people who are healthy in their body want to be there more often, and I get that, and I buy into that, but if I'm healthier, if I've done a lot of this work, if I feel comfortable in my body most of the time, wouldn't I also still benefit from this not in my body for a period of time place that I can go to once in a while. And that's where this thinking of like, and and not to mention, I mean, with the psychedelics, there's also the research that's saying there's more to it than just being outside of your body. Like they're talking about new brain uh, formations and, and, and networks forming when you do these things that are beneficial for people. So there's more to it than that. Not just, I'm talking about the weed here with just being outside of the body. Right. And I'm like, is this going to be a bad? I don't know, right? I don't know. I don't have those answers, but I also don't want to fool myself into going back to the life I used to live because that's not a good idea for me at all. Yeah. So 
I would say she's, I mean, part of, I would agree with her partially. I think what she's talking about tends to lean more towards abusive use of drugs and the compulsion to want to be out of your body, you know, as a result of trauma. But if you look back historically, I mean, people have used drugs and hallucinogenics in all kinds of ritual you know, practices, they've used them in religious practices, like altering your state of mind is not something that has just been done for traumatic reasons. You know, religious experiences, what's, you know, the Eucharist or whatever is centered around drinking wine. Right. You know, there's a sort of, I'm going to call this really minor belief that that had to do with the little bit of euphoric feeling you would get from that, you know, drinking alcohol like you get a little bit of a euphoric feeling from it that's great that's what you want to assimilate with jesus you know Mm -hmm. and that even going back further they've you know native americans have used peyote and different hallucinogenics and tobacco which not like the tobacco we use now but that has a mind-altering effect but it's not used in abusive ways and in fact it's used as like a spiritual experience because you are opening your mind and and trying to um, almost like you said, like open new patterns of thinking or disrupt old patterns of thinking, you know, those kind of practice, you know, those kind of ideas behind some of the reasons why people would use drugs in any form. Right. Um, I think as addicts, for me at least, the danger is, can't speak for all addicts, but for me the danger is I have ingrained a sense of obsession and compulsion with that type of behavior and the fear, and I don't know if it's true and I don't really want to fucking find out, mm. is that if I start it once, I won't be able to turn it back off. That once I turn that coping mechanism back on, <laughs> like it will fucking stay on and right. I won't be able to just do it occasionally or once in a while. So what is that? Life is hard and sometimes I turn to Jesus and sometimes I turn to whiskey, but either way I'm guided by the spirit. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, no, I I think what you said actually ties in exactly to what she's saying. And she's saying that healthy people don't choose it all the time. Like that's not what their, their goal is. Like people who are struggling with that underlying, uh, you know, unrest inside their body and turmoil, they're always going to want the escape, right? And that's how we turn into addicts, alcoholics, or whatever. We're constantly searching to be outside of our body. But healthy people don't. They don't generally want that. That doesn't mean that they're not going to pursue it for a spiritual experience or for something over here. Like, they do it, but they don't feel the need to constantly do it because they're very comfortable in their body on a regular basis. So it's like they can go have this experience at these times in their life for spiritual reasons, for other purposes. And it doesn't make them want it to do it all the time because they also appreciate the rest of their life while they are in their body. I think that's her point. And that's kind of what I'm like somewhat, I don't want to say buying into, but I'm a believer in her information. I'm a believer in science. And I look and I say, I do have that fear. I have that same fear you have. If I didn't have that fear, I would have already done it, right? right? I just don't know if that's an old fear that's not warranted in actual science today. Like, if there has been this amount of healing, do we need to still have that fear? Like, if we are generally comfortable in our bodies 
on most days like are we gonna fall back into this obsession and compulsion and i'm not saying it's impossible i just i just don't know and i don't want to be missing out on something that i i don't i guess i i kind of think there's a healthy part of this if we're using it for a spiritual experience if we're using it to seek interesting new brain growth and development if we're using these things for I guess, positive reasons or what we're learning that the research shows that is available from some of these experiences. Is that the same? Like, is my body going to react the same? Is that some of our 12 step information? Like the, the, we have a, what do they call it? A, a allergic reaction, right? Mm-hmm. To, to the, what happens when we use, well, yeah, but is our new science explaining that that allergic reaction is really the fact that we like hate being inside of our bodies and that's what escapes us for a time. And when we no longer hate being outside of our bodies, that does change. You know yeah. what I mean? Well, my own personal experience has been with pain medications and when I've had to take them for, you know, medical reasons while I've been clean. Right. That fucking obsession came back. That compulsive mm. thinking crept right in pretty quickly and scared the shit out of me and I flushed them down the fucking toilet or got rid of them, you know, because again, I mean, I was taking them for the right reasons. I felt like I was in a good place in my life. I did all the right things. Talked to my wife, talked to my sponsor. You know what I mean? I got to get this surgery. I'm going to be on these medications. I mean, it wasn't like I just fell into those situations. And yet within a few days of having to take them or deciding to take them, I, I found for me, that compulsion coming back. So that fear is not unwarranted. It's definitely a fear that's worth keeping right out in front of that. My two arguments for this. (laughs) (laughs) One, I have not had to take pain medication since I went through some pretty intensive therapy. Um, All my pain medication use was pre that. And so I don't have any experience on what I'd consider the healthier side uh, of a lot of that healing that I've done. So I I can't relate it. I don't know yet, right? I don't have that experience. And two, I would say, I think opiates might not be the thing that I would want to try. <laughs> like that yeah. doesn't come across as like, oh, maybe I'll recreationally take some Percocets every once in a while. Like that's not. Right. And I don't know if that's a difference in the drug types and, and what they do to you. And maybe that's just one that doesn't have. The, like, I'm definitely not going to think, man, you know. I think once every three months I'm going to smoke crack for a night. Like that's probably not the drug that's going <laughs> right. to do any mind opening for me or, or any relaxation or any of that. Right. Like I, I'm definitely thinking mostly in the hallucinogenic category is where I'm going. The weed is kind of just like, uh, I feel like it's such, I don't want to say it, but a, a minor edible thing. form. It's pretty hallucinogenic. Yeah. So, so anyway. maybe that's what I want to do. I don't know if I could have ate the no, weed I, in Jamaica. And I've had the same thoughts too. So I am totally, I mean, I would call myself, if anything, I'm pro-drug. I think it should all be legal. I think there's benefits to all of it. I think abusive use of anything is a problem. So I am not an anti-drug person. Um, this is going to be terrible to say. Somebody's probably going to want to come take my kids. But I've actually joked around with my kids about needing to try to smoke weed at some point <laughs> in their life so they have the experience. Because it's going to be legal here pretty soon. But I feel the same thing with alcohol. Like I'm like, look, I'd rather you just, like, try it and have the experience than to be like, oh, this is so terrible, I'm never going to do it, and then the first time you do it, find yourself, you know, addicted or whatever. I don't know. 
it's just I, I don't think experiences in life are bad. I think being open minded and and upfront about what you're doing, it like it becomes dangerous when it becomes secretive and uh, something that you're shameful of or something that you're embarrassed by. Like then it can become unhealthy or dangerous. I'm definitely calling child services when I leave. <laughs> but I've thought the same with hallucinogenics. I thought, wow, like later in my life, that might be something I want to try. And I, I guess I've fallen into the place right now where I'm like, one, they really need to do a lot more studies on it to know a lot of what they're doing now is very, very uh, cursory studies because all the science is just now coming out because it got ignored for so long and the research was so... Uh, unperf- unsupported by professional medical because people. Because the goddamn government wouldn't let anybody it illegal. do it. Right, because they made it illegal, which which is a major setback. I mean, yeah. when my mom was going through her end-of-life time, I was joking but half serious. I'm like, you should see about trying some you know, hallucinogenics. They say that really helps people with their end-of-life experience. Like, right. I was totally on board with, I mean, fuck, if I'm dying, I want anything that's going to make that transition better you know who wants to lay around in fear and agony all that <laughs> but for me personally um i don't know if that's gonna set off an obsessive compulsive thing that i have and i'd rather not try yet when i'm not really sure that the benefits are there mm. you know but if if five or ten years from now they came up with a thing that said hey we believe this is the best therapy for this form of issue that i have I might be willing to do it. I mean, right now I'm willing to take uh, opiates for pain because right. they tell me that's the best that they got. And if I'm in pain, I'm going to take that, even though I know it's a substance I have an issue with, but I'm going to try to follow it as prescribed and do it, you know, in that vein. And if I get to a point in my life where I feel like I'm struggling with anxiety or some issue that they know that an, uh, hallucinogenic is the fix for, I would probably consider it. Yeah, see, I don't even think I want to wait to have some fucking problem that they need to solve with it. Like, I just think it's, from what I've seen in the research and and from where I'm coming from, it's like a a beneficial thing to, to, you know, brain expansion and brain growth. And it triggers the same thing that happens during your younger years where your brain's developing new channels and new routes to talk to itself and other pieces of it. And so... It's like kind of not it's not like one of these, oh, it's going to unlock things and I'll be able to fly and fucking, you know, levitate and shit like that. No, it's just I'm going to be able to create all this new open mindedness, I guess, to some extent. And I'm I'm not going to be like, oh, well, let me find a therapist that's going to prescribe this. I want it to be like a an experience. Like So the counter argument I heard to that and it's not saying that it's wrong. It's just saying you have to look at this as part of the counter argument is typically the people that are trying those experiments and participating in those studies are already open-minded and they have a certain type of personality to be willing to go into those situations and have that experience oh well, that's so me. what's that control <laughs> bias it's it's a control right. bias now if you said we have a bunch of like uptight anxious fucking assholes and they went and took this stuff and now all of a sudden they're more open-minded and they're more spiritual and they've grown some enlightenment like well then that well that's the research they're doing where they're treating the people (laughs) that's the ones who are just going for anxiety like i just want to not be so anxious because i'm so uptight and they're finding the growth 
to not be anxious anymore. Right, but that's very preliminary. And and again, I'm not against it. I think it sounds great, but it's just knowing like, well, wait a minute. If you're already this open-minded person that's looking for spiritual growth and new spiritual avenues, do you need that psychedelic? And is that the safest way to go for someone that's had a substance use issue you so know? when i take if i'm already my... open-minded i might not need it <laughs> when i take my ayahuasca i will make sure billy can be my designated watcher <laughs> yeah. to keep me safe and not jump off any houses or anything because he will not be taking it Perfect. i mean there's always that you know discussion people have had too is like is the best of those experiences like would you be better to have that experience with some shaman out in the middle of the jungle somewhere or you know, or on a Jamaican smoking beach. peyote with a yeah, with a Native American, you know, medicine man. Like, is that the way to have those experiences versus in a lab somewhere with right. a doctor in that kind of controlled environment? And you know, I don't know. It's fascinating. It's very interesting. I actually have to tone down my research and exploration into some of that information because it does get me really wanting to fucking do it (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah i don't know i and you know you talked about when we keep it secretive and it becomes shameful and stuff and i feel like that's one of the issues i come up against not that i necessarily feel ashamed about it and i feel like i have other channels and places where i could talk about that experience freely and not be shamed for it or judged or anything. And those people would be like, oh, tell us about it. Like, maybe that's something we want to try. That's really interesting, right? And that's more in, like, my professional setting, which is interesting that that's my professional setting. They would cheer that on. Um, but the community of recovery people that I have been around for so long now, I feel like I would be shunned there. And I would have to monitor where I said it. And I almost feel like that's a shame-based cult in itself so to for speak. sure I, if i was going to do that stuff i would definitely look at that as giving up my you know 12 step recovery yeah uh whatever you want to call it clean time or status or membership like if i decided mm-hmm. i was going to go do some peyote with a native american you know medicine man i part of that decision making process would be giving up my participation in 12-step fellowship or at least being able to come back and say i used (laughs) and whether i'd want to do that i think for me that kind of means and and i had to ask this i asked this to jenny early on when she did the uh the episode about recovery dharma where she kind of left the aa fellowship to be in recovery dharma because that seemed more fitting for her like was there guilt or, or a problem with leaving this place that you had been for years to go to this other place. And I, I guess you kind of told me something right there that I didn't realize is that I kind of, if I'm ever going to do that, I will probably have to be in some other group of recovery and established and connected. And, and maybe that's part of my experience with the 12 step world right now is that I don't feel super connected anyway. Um, but I still do kind of rely on it here and there for this little bit of connection. And, and maybe I need to be connected somewhere else before I do that. Cause yeah, I don't know that I w- would want to come back and be like, Oh, Hey, I, I gave up my clean time. Like the way we talk about it. Yeah. Right. Like I relapsed, like that's not how I would look at it. And it would be very, 
It would be hard to exist in that community of those types of words when that's not the view I have of what I did. And I don't think you'd get, you wouldn't, like, I wouldn't go into that expecting to get support. You know what I mean? Like, right or wrong, you're not going to get support no. <laughs> like for that experience. No, no. And I think that's interesting. And And I wonder if that doesn't, like, bring up a topic in itself of, like, our vocabulary and the way we speak of things in that world, right? If that doesn't really do some harm to some people who are, and, and I'm not talking about now the people who are trying, but even people who, who go out and struggle to stay clean repeatedly, right? We have chronic relapsers and shit like this, like these labels and these judgments and this vocabulary that's full of judgment-based words, right? Suboxone and, and all this shit, maintenance. And I wonder if that really doesn't negatively impact a lot of people trying to find recovery. It could, but I, I believe that's sort of the why we have so many different A fellowships and why there are so many different pathways for recovery. It's like, you know, the 12-step fellowship that we go to has one model and one way that works for a lot of fucking people and the danger of expecting them to change isn't worth, you know what I mean? Like, like, yes, they could change, but should they? Like, that's why those traditions are there is to protect them from, well, science today says it's okay to use hallucinogenics, so hallucinogenics are okay. And so, you know, and I that's hear why you. we don't let the professionals change. But I, I feel like there's a piece you miss when you say that, right? And I hear, I agree, right? If NA was just uh, another A that was out there, then yes, I think that makes total sense. NA is the total abstinence route. That's an option that's over there. But And I don't know what it's like in detox today. I have not been through detox in a long no. time. When I went to detox, it was go to NA or AA. That was it, right? Mm -hmm. That's what the fuck was out there. These other things weren't as popular. They weren't everywhere. They're still not everywhere. You've talked about places NA doesn't even exist. They definitely don't have a lot of these other A's, right? right? Does the virtual world make them a little more accessible? Yeah, but you're still not in person creating community. And so NA, whether it asks for it or not, by default has become the recovery community. Does that mean that there's not little tiny specks of recovery community in some of these other fellowships? No, there is, right? Yeah, of course, there's a smart recovery community somewhere. But a lot of these people who do other ones, in order to sustain their recovery, also do NA or also do an AA, right? So it's the hub. It's the hub of everybody. And I'm not saying that they need to change, but we as a culture need to change where the hub is in order to have NA just allowed to be its own thing. As long as NA is the hub where everybody's coming first and getting shuffled to, there's a lot of damage being done to people who are choosing other methods of recovery, right? They're choosing other recovery paths and they're coming to the hub and the hub is shaming them saying it's wrong. Yeah, I think culture's changing though around that. I don't know that the 12-step fellowships, predominantly AA and NA are the, I wouldn't call them the hub anymore. You don't think so? I think, no, well, you're seeing more community-based organizations coming out that are sort of doing that stuff. The Recovery Cafe and those kind of models and ideas are becoming a lot more popular. Uh, the harm reduction models, a lot of those are based around recovery-based 
community centers and community organizations that are not just 12-step okay, based. I don't mean to interrupt you here, right? But a lot more available in terms of percentage of popularity to what they used to be, I completely agree. A lot more widely available. Where's the closest recovery cafe? D.C.? That's yeah, well, why, well, that's what I mean, though. This is all changing with the culture. I mean, all this science behind using uh, hallucinogenics for growth and all, that's all brand new, too. Right. So you can't expect the culture to change before the okay. science. You know what I mean? Like, it's it's got to catch up. And the culture 15 years ago, even before Suboxone and all that, was drug recovery is abstinence-based. Like, that's how you right. treat drug recovery. Now the science has slowly changed over the last what, 15 years, you know, since I've been clean. When I first got clean, there wasn't Suboxone, there wasn't right. there was methadone and that was kind of shameful yes. for even people on methadone it was right. fucking shameful. So, you know, it was abstinence based was the the model, the the main model. But that's changed in the last 15 years. And these things are, again, they're not as widely available, but that's because NA's been around since 1953 and AA since the 1930s, I think. I think. So you can't fault the programs for not keeping up with the science. Like, that's not... Well, no, I'm not saying that, but you were talking about, like, uh, maintenance, uh, you know, is a big pathway to recovery at this point in time. It's one of the, the ways we know percentage-wise, keeps people from doing more harm. As far as I understand, you don't go and get your Suboxone from your doctor and then they recommend you to go to Suboxone groups three nights a week or something. Like, that doesn't exist. Maybe they have one group there a week. I don't know. Maybe that's a thing. I don't think it is. I haven't heard about people. All those people come to NA because NA is the hub, right? They still push people that direction or that's still the only place people know to go to. If you go to Baltimore and there's 600 NA meetings a week and whatever, 800 AA meetings a week, how many Suboxone type recovery meetings or groups or connections can you make with recovery people? Where's those groups, right? Maybe there is one or two, but still the comparison, we're still, I feel like we're harming so many people by this language and vocabulary that that abstinence base is still the only way because that's NA's belief and that's fine, but that's where everybody's coming. And so anybody on a different path is still getting that shame and that shunning from that community. True. Well, that's partially true. I would agree with most of that. The problem is I think you're looking at the, the if you're looking to see who's at fault, I would say that's the fault of the doctors and the treatment centers for being uneducated on what they're telling their participants. If there's a doctor that's prescribing Suboxone to people and then telling them to go to AA or NA, that's their fault. I mean, that's not the fault of the fellowship that the fucking doctor... And this this gets back to why we have these traditions that say we don't endorse, you know, lend the NA name to outside facilities and enterprises. Because you have these fucking people that don't know anything about NA, never been to a fucking meeting in their whole life, and they're sending people that are on maintenance programs telling them you can go there and be clean. And that's not NA's fault. That's the fucking doctor's fault. That's well, the recovery center's fault. Maybe. They are not educated and they're misinforming people. But maybe they're not telling people they can go there and be clean. Maybe some are. But maybe people are just saying this is where other people in recovery are. Right? And why is that happening? Because NA 
public relations decided to go out there and make their presence known and have presentations to different doctors and communities and, and officials and people in these professional stances and say, hey, NA's here. We're available. We're a recovery community. We did that. We wanted the growth. We wanted people to come here. So we've made our name known. I mean, maybe, maybe uh, you know, Suboxone Recovery Anonymous or whatever the fuck it is hasn't had the ability to have public relations to go to all these world seminars and speak to hundreds of doctors at a time and tell them that they exist and that they're a place to go. So NA, by putting itself out there as the recovery community, has put itself in position to be this hub. We've had the growth. We've made our name known to the professionals. Now the professionals send people there. I, I mean, I, I think we're... Mm partly responsible for that i think na is partly responsible for that not we yeah i would totally just i mean because in our literature it's pretty clear if you read any little bits of literature we are a program of complete abstinence from all drugs we consider alcohol you know like i mean i I don't think there's some hiding of what the program is based in or some hiding of of what so where do you model is where do you send people that want uh recovery support or other people like them that are living a life without heroin and cocaine use now, where would you send them if you're not going to send them to NA or AA meetings to find fellowship? Where would I send them? Yeah. Well, there's smart recovery or some other meetings they can start meeting. I mean, the the answer to your question is, I don't know. That's not my fucking problem. <laughs> I mean, you know, I'm just I'm just saying if if I decide I want to and this is that goes back to what you're talking about with the, you know, me, if I decide I want to take hallucinogenics, I don't go take hallucinogenics and then come to NA and start pointing fingers and yelling at people and telling them they need to open their fucking minds and change what they're doing to suit a decision that I just made for myself. I go into that decision going, oh, that's what these guys believe. If I'm going to go make that decision, that means I am walking away from this group of people and the support that I have in my life because they don't see it that way. Right. But to answer your first, well, to respond to your first statement, it wasn't a question, but (laughs) you don't know where to send them because there is nowhere else to send them. Can you send them to a smart recovery meeting in our area? Sure. Do you know who goes? There's counselors. That's not a connection to a community. That's a professional. Talking about where are they going to find other people like them? So why don't these doctors or places that fucking prescribe that shit take some responsibility for that? Well, and and maybe they could start some meetings, but I I just think that I think NA has put itself out there as it's the leader in community of recovery. I I think that's what its goal has been forever, and it's accomplished it well. It is the big name out there. It is where people know where to send people. I don't see all this public relations shit that you're talking about. Like, well, some of this is is on a higher level, but that's. I mean, if you read the public relations workbook or the handbook or whatever, it tells you that. Yeah, I did public relations for years. Yeah, the the handbook talks about this is why we've reached out to the professionals in our community to let them know that we're here and this, that, and the other. Like, it's the name. It's kind of like, you know, we call them Kleenex instead of facial tissues. Like, uh, we know it by that because that's what's been out there, right? Or, or huggies instead of diapers or whatever. Like it's, we know the recovery community by the NA name. It's big. It's known now. It's not a secret. But I, I think you even spoke to more of it. It's not about coming back and finger pointing, but it's about why have we set up the culture to be one of shame instead of support? Even if somebody did, in our eyes, use, 
why is it not more supportive conversations with them? Why is it more shunning and Well, I think shameful? that is change. And I was thinking that when you talked about like the, the medicated assisted stuff and whether I have an opinion on where we should go or shouldn't go doesn't matter as much for this point. I think if you polled people now about what they think about Suboxone compared to what people thought 10 years ago about Suboxone and then 10 years before that, you'd see that the it's people are becoming more open-minded. People are becoming more accepting, and there are a small percentage of people, and I'll still say it's still a small percentage of people that are accepting of people being on a maintenance program, which is growth. It's not perfection yeah. or, or whatever, and we'll, like I say, regardless of my opinion on whether we should or shouldn't, that is generally what's happening. People are more... Even if they don't agree with it as a form of treatment, the shaming isn't near as bad as it was, I would say, a few years ago. Mm. At least in this immediate area. I can't speak for any area outside of here. Right. I can tell you there was a point a few years ago where it was pretty, you would, people would say some pretty mean shit to people <laughs> that came in on Suboxone or Methadone or any of those stuff. They would be sure to point out that they're not clean. And that will still happen, but it's very different than what it was 10 years ago. And and I agree with that. I think it is growing. I think it is changing. I think, unfortunately, that still means there's a lot of people still catching the flack and the harm done to them along the way until we get there. But <laughs> but does I, culture ever keep up with the science of anything? It, like the sciences and but... the understanding of the... You know, the the brain and, the you know, addiction and all that is just totally what I would say evolved in the last even 10 years with understanding the effects of trauma and all that. Like, oh, that's brand new shit that we didn't really make those links or at least mainstream those links weren't being made. You know, it was the same old shame and guilt. You're an addict because you got no moral fucking character. You know, <laughs> like I've said this before on here and I say it again. And I think it's the, the, the only thing I have left to say about this personally is that NA to me, whether it asked for it or not. And I think it asked for it has become the hub for recovery. And even people who don't really want NA's version of what recovery means or their definition of it don't have a better place to go to meet other recovery people like them. And that means either NA has to change or where the fucking hub is has to change. One of those two has got to give because everybody can't be funneled somewhere. And then that same place stick to, well, we're just about this. And, and I don't know what the answer is. I mean, ideally in my head, the answer is that there becomes a new recovery hub where everybody gets sent and NA is just an option on the side. I think that's the best ideal. But I don't see that happening because everybody already goes to fucking NA. Mm, I don't think everybody does. I mean, I don't know. Maybe they don't. I don't know. Yeah. I don't have any place to meet the people <laughs> right. who don't. God damn you have it. To that's ask the people problem. that are coming out of treatment or coming through these programs if, if these programs are pushing them to NA. Whether it's the programs pushing them there or whether it's just that's what's known. Like everybody's heard of it by now. Yeah, but that's like saying you blame Kleenex for Kleenex. Like that's not their fault. Well, for in Kleenex's case, they did their job well. They put their name out there and got their name known, and now they're the one that are associated with yeah, it. Yeah, but they said this is what we are and this is what we do. It's different if Kleenex said, you know, if you rub your nose with this, you're going to get a bigger dick and huge breasts, and everybody went, oh, that's why we need Kleenex, but Both that's not what the they did time? at all. <laughs> <laughs> or do I only get the one I want? You know, 
they said this is what we are and this is what we do and if you got a stuffy nose and a, you know you want to rub it we're soft and we have aloe and fucking whatever else they say and people went oh that's great we love that look they made them in these convenient packages that's awesome but it's not like these things happen through like i mean if it's through manipulation and and that's again back to the traditions just to tie it back to the traditions that's why we don't promote and endorse the program i mean i guess you're saying we did we didn't uh yeah public relations definitely has gone and speaking to professionals about what we have to offer you got to take into consideration how those messages were delivered the fact that those messages were delivered by non-professionals which means they might have been skewed because they were not professional people giving these messages to the professionals right they were just na people giving these ideas that na works we don't hire professionals to so give i've our been talks. involved in NA and PR in this area for 20 plus years. I know Jen could tell you even longer. I've actually done these whatever, not seminars, but where you go and at these health fairs and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. I've done some of that. Not one organization, doctor, rehab has ever reached out to us and asked us to do a presentation on what we have to offer or an advertisement as to what we do. Well, I don't think that's at the area level. I think that's at upper levels where they're they're doing these things for, you know. Say so you're saying World Service went to Harbor of Grace that just opened over in Haverty Grace and said, let me tell you all about N.A. and no. how <laughs> I think there's been times where there's Great. been conventions of, you know, hey, we're having the addiction summit uh, to talk about how to help the addiction problem. And it's a thousand doctors here and they've probably given some kind of talk on yes, a day like that. Yeah, these health seminars and stuff. Right. And so the more we put our name out there, how many other recovery communities were putting their name out there to give another option? Probably zero. N.A. is the main player. Uh, I mean, that's not really true. <laughs> you don't think so? No, I can't say. What I, I other mean, free recovery community was there given a presentation besides N.A.? I, if you could show me any of these presentations, even one that you know of that's happened anywhere, okay. I would say. All the health fairs you've gone to and set up a table at. How many other recovery communities had a table there? Uh, I never paid attention. I know, like, AA's been there. Um, uh, AA, yeah. I yeah. By that. There's the other the, big one. <laughs> what's the, I'm going to say Christians in Recovery. That's not, is that their name? What's the 12, the Christian Celebrate one? Recovery. Celebrate Recovery is ones that have they been got, there. They got money. They got church funding. <laughs> right. But I'm just saying, like, because we show up at a health fair to let people know that NA exists in our area is not. I mean, this is where it gets back to the advertising and why we don't endorse finance or lend the NA name. That's like saying if we put a billboard up on 95 that says, hey, you have a drug problem, need to talk, call this 800 number. I mean, I don't think that makes us responsible for being the hub for recovery. Okay. If I go to the, the, the local fair every year uh, for 20 years and I see Hillside HVAC there every year, and then I have an HVAC problem. Who the fuck do you think I'm going to call? Here's the difference, though. If you came to Hillside and said, I have a business and I have a commercial air conditioner and I want you to fix it. And we said, oh, we don't fix commercial air conditioners. We just do residential. And you said, what? Your fucking advertising said you do HVAC. I have HVAC. And now you need to fucking fix it. That's a different thing. We don't yeah. specifically say, you know, we say, 
this is what we do. If you ask us what we do, we do HVAC, heating, air conditioning. We don't do geothermal either. That's another type of HVAC that we don't actually work on. So if people call and say, I have a geothermal system, we say, oh, I'm sorry. That's not what we do. We do something else. Maybe you could call somebody else. And they say, well, who the fuck am I supposed to call? I'm like, I don't know. Somebody that does geothermal. Is it my job to tell you who you right, need to call but for people geothermal? in N.A. don't say that. We say, say what? we say this is what our program is, but we also, in our traditions, try to help the still-suffering addict, each and every one of them. It never says, like, help the still-suffering addict that only wants the path to recovery that we offer. It doesn't say that in our traditions, right? So when people walk in the door, we say, oh, I want to help get this person clean. We don't say, hey, we don't offer services to people on maintenance. You go well, to another meeting. Well, we say our primary purpose is to carry the mat. And I guess that would be... When you talk about the message, that I'm thinking it would be the NA message. Right, and it might be, NA. but if somebody calls Hillside, you're, you're not going to say, oh, hey, look, uh, I know we don't do commercial, but but let us try to help you with your problem. That's what we do in NA. It's what we've always done. So we're not just easily, readily at the door turning people away and telling them to go find help somewhere else. That's not what's happening. We've seen these these NA people at fairs. The name is out there. It's what people have heard of. They say, oh, it's NA, the people who help addicts. I'm fucking struggling with drugs. I'm choosing a, ma a maintenance way to deal with it, but I'm going to go to NA because they're the people that help with addicts. We've just seen the name. The name is big enough. So we've seen them at the fairs every time. There's no alternatives to say, oh, should I do NA or that other place I saw at the fair? Because there was no fucking other place at the fair. It was just N.A. And then we go there and the people still try to help us. They just tell us we're doing it wrong. They're not saying we don't offer those services here. That's mm -hmm. where your business equation breaks down for me. Like you guys just say it off the bat. That's not what we do. Yeah. Well, I think that's what we do. And I mean, really, you tell anybody people to that's stop coming to meetings? Me? No, I don't tell them to stop. But I never hide the fact that we are abstinence based and that, you know, that's what working steps and shit i don't i wouldn't work steps with somebody that was on a maintenance not at least na steps i would do something else and that's just my personal thing and i would do that outside of na i mean people have asked me to sponsor them outside of na and i've told them yeah but you know we'll yeah, do but something how confusing else. is that look we won't we're, we, we don't <laughs> do commercial but uh we can work on something outside of hillside where we'll still work on your hvac like that's but i'm not na I understand. I'm Billy but, the recovery person. But that's happening everywhere. That's what's going on with everybody. The people are being welcomed in, but then being told they're wrong. We're not turning people away from NA. We're not saying, hey, if you're on Suboxone, just don't come to our meetings. We don't offer those services. We're saying, hey, we're here to help still suffering addict. Come on in, but you're doing it wrong. Mm, maybe. I mean, yeah. I don't know. I just don't think it works. But we've rambled on. This is supposed to be tradition eight. All right. So uh, I don't know. Uh, have your own arguments about <laughs> what the fuck it needs to do. Uh, Keep doing what it's doing. No. <laughs> like, Become a recovery hub. Fold. I don't. More know. people are coming because it works. Are they? <laughs> I don't know. I don't membership anywhere. I've been going up. Yeah, but are they clean? <laughs> Anyway, uh, I don't know. Have a good week out there, I guess. <laughs> Did you like this episode? Share it with people you think might get something out of it. Check out the rest of our episodes at recoverysortof.com. 
Also, while you're there, you can find ways to link up with us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Reddit, YouTube, anything. We're always looking for new ideas. Got an idea you want us to look into? Reach out to us.